Well, today we're going to begin a brand new series called Spirit-Led Living. Spirit-Led Living. Now, we just um, came out of a series named Moral Compass. And um, uh, I, I just had this thought as we came out of that time where we studied the Ten Commandments and we saw the principles behind the commandments and uh, we were all refreshed and perhaps maybe you now see the Ten Commandments in a new light. But um, how many of you understand this, that a compass is only useful when you're moving? If you have a compass and you're standing still, you're not actually using the compass at its fullest potential because a compass is to give you a sense of direction while you're moving, while you're doing something. And, uh, and so the Lord really put it on my heart to begin a series that will cause us as a body to begin to move in the principles that we've been learning. That God is going to begin to move us. That the time of simply listening and collecting notes and agreeing with sermon points is coming to a close. And the time of the church actually standing up in strength. People who know their God beginning to do mighty and great exploits. That time is upon us. And movement for a born-again follower, follower of Jesus should look like one thing, follow the leader. Did you ever play this game as a child, follow the leader? Usually it got more and more complex. You know, the person up front would do things that maybe other people couldn't do, and then you, you have a, a, a lot of people falling on themselves and doing this. The Christian life is follow the leader. And the leader is the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And, and there, if there is one verse that is going to sum up this series that we're going to step into, it is this. It's from Romans chapter 8, verse 14. And it says this, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For as many as are led. I don't know what you think about the term led, what you thought that that actually means. It doesn't just mean governed by, it actually means for as many as keep in step with. That's what Galatians 5 tells us, that since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk or keep in step with the Spirit. See, Spirit-led living is the Christian life. We need to be led by the Spirit. Has anybody ever been led by the Spirit and you didn't even know you were being led by the Spirit? You, I'm telling you, God is so good, sometimes it's even beyond our awareness. 
You know, we could be doing something and we just had no idea that God was about to show up or he was working behind the scenes and we just had no idea how God was going to give us the breakthrough or we didn't even see it coming. We were just going. We were just trying to be faithful to God and then all of a sudden, God gives us a breakthrough. God gives us a sign. God speaks to us in those moments. God is so good, but he doesn't want us to be unaware. He doesn't want us to be unaware of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to live uh, in, in totally blind faith. He wants us to, to know him and to follow him into, into new areas. And I believe that God wants to begin to create movement. And this sermon probably today is going to end unlike any other sermon that you have been in, in, in that there is a call to action behind these sermons because God wants us to take brand new steps of faith. There's a great quote by a man of God. His faith and life of following the Spirit, um, I tell you, they inspire me. His name is Smith Wigglesworth, and he says these words. He says, our blessed Lord Jesus is still alive and continues his ministry through those who are filled with his Spirit. How many of you here believe that Jesus is alive? I mean, he is alive. And what you and I need to, need to say is I need to come into agreement with what the word says. Is that his ministry continues. Why? His body is still here on the planet. His body is you and I. We're the church. That body's supposed to be filled with his spirit, following his spirit, doing those things which would actually produce his will on, on the earth. For those who don't know Smith Wigglesworth, he was a man of faith. Let me tell you one story about Smith Wigglesworth. I love this guy. He was actually pastoring uh, this, this, this man who had a friend, a family friend, who had someone die in their family. So as his pastor, this other family had no pastor. They didn't have any affiliation with church really. And uh, as his pastor, he just asked him to come. He said, will you just come and, and you know, just be kind and love on them and talk to them and, and just be, you know, just, just really embrace them in their time of loss. Smith said, I'll come. So Smith walked in with this, this person he was pastoring and Smith didn't talk to anybody. He just starts walking through the house. And at that time, what they would do is they would bring the body and they would set it right in the house. And everybody would be in the house mourning. But they had set this one in the dining room. And the dining room had two French doors. And so Smith is just looking all around the house. He's kind of not ignoring into this other person's thinking, why aren't you just saying anything? He's not saying anything. He's just looking around. Finally, he spots the dead man. And he, he, he opens the French doors, walks in, closes them behind. And it was said that his voice could be heard several houses away. Because he pulled the man from the coffin and stuck him in the corner. And then backed up and said, in the name of Jesus, live. And the body slunk down the wall to the floor. He went back over and grabbed the body and stuck him back up. 
and backed up. And he said, I said, and the body slid to the ground. He grabbed the body a third time and slammed him against the wall. And it said, I said in the name of Jesus, live. And the man woke up. (laughs) And the story goes, they greeted one another and walked out. Two men, arm in arm. And those who were upset that the pastor did not talk to them when he walked in now didn't want to talk to the pastor. (laughs) They were terrified. They were like, who is this man? And now he's alive. Their family member. It is said that Smith Wigglesworth raised some 16 different people from the dead, including his wife. And that's in the last century. His wife rebuked him for raising her from the dead. (laughs) When she came back, the story is told this way. She said, Smith, I was with Jesus. (laughs) He said, I know, I just wanted to talk. They talked for about 30 minutes, and then she laid back down and went right back home. (laughs) I believe that spirit-led living It's supposed to be a supernatural life. I I don't think that stories like the life of Smith Wigglesworth are just supposed to be rare and shocking. I actually believe that we are supposed to minister, as Christ said in John chapter 14. He says, those who believe in me, the works I do, they will do also. And greater works will they do because I go to the Father. And what did he say? I'm going to the Father so I can send you the Holy Spirit and that's who we're talking about that's the kind of life that God is calling us to and listen there are some things that are going to have to be laid to the side in this series one of them is the opinion of man you're going to have to stop caring what other people think you're going to have to listen and now now listen I'm not telling you to go into a funeral and drag somebody out of a coffin (laughs) but if you're convinced you're supposed to call me because I want to be there And I will be filming, (laughs) and we will put it up, (laughs) regardless of your results. (laughs) So I'm just saying, (laughs) spirit-led living is this supernatural walk with God, and it is supposed to be the natural walk for believers. Why? Because God's supernatural. You know, many of us, we we live in low-level struggles. We're like, ah, you know, I just want to be this person. I just want to do this. I just want to do that. I just want to be a better person. I want to be better. I want to be better. I want to be better. We try with our willpower to be better. Has that worked out for anybody? No. The answer is a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. And in this series, we're actually going to, to talk about how the spirit leads to change. I can't wait to share that message with you, but that's not today. Today, we're going to talk about spirit-led prayer. You say, why spirit-led prayer? Well, this, I believe, um, as we come out of a week of prayer and fasting where we saw God move powerfully in this place, not only in this place, but as we prayed at Inverness Middle School, we saw God do things and we'll see God do things this year on campuses we've never seen because our church left these four walls, stood in a place and by proxy asked God to do the miraculous. 
And then on Friday, we stood at the city of Inverness government uh, building around the memorial that they have there. And we cried out for our community for awakening and revival. And here's what we're going to see, the greatest season of God's presence in our community. Why? Because we were walking in spirit-led prayer. And I, I'm here today to not condemn, but to compel. I'm, I'm compelling you to come and begin this journey. Come and begin to run with us. Come and begin to be a part of what God is doing in the earth. Don't be the person that says, yep, I was there when all of that was happening, but I really wasn't a part of it. No, come and be a part of it first by learning what it is to be led by the Spirit into prayer. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at a passage. It's probably very familiar to you, Luke chapter 11. And um, this is right after Jesus' disciples have been watching Jesus pray, see that he gets different results when he prays. These guys are very religious. And uh, they said, Jesus, teach us to pray, just like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. He says, okay, and then he gives us the model prayer. Maybe many of you know that as the Lord's Prayer. Um, and he gives kind of that outline. It's a model. It's okay that you pray it, but it's better that you use the, the model prayer as a model for your prayer time. But then Jesus continues to teach about prayer, some principles that I believe the Spirit is leading us to grow into so that we can see God's will come to pass in our day. Luke chapter 11, verse 5 says this, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are, are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give them as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone Everyone, for everyone, for everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you, then being evil... How, no, uh, no, and know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? These are profound statements about prayer. I know in some of your Bibles, uh, these scriptures are divided with a heading. I just want to let you know, those headings are not inspired. 
sometimes what they do is they make us think Jesus is changing the subject, but he's not changing the subject. This is all the same subject, and it's the topic of spirit-led prayer. So, I believe that God wants to change the way we view prayer. Now, whenever I was uh, first uh, born again, age 21, here's what I loved. I loved revival meetings. I loved people getting hands laid on them. And man, I loved seeing people get delivered. I loved being in the glorious worship. I loved the meetings. But there was one meeting I wanted no part of, a prayer meeting. Because at age, like from age like, zero to 12, I went to this really, really small missionary Baptist church. And I remember as a child accidentally walking in uh, on the prayer meeting and I thought it was a session on napping. Because everybody's kind of sitting around, kind of silently, just kind of. I never really understood prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm just a kid in these services. And I remember from the pulpit, there would be, you know, one of the elders would say something like this. Anyone have any prayer requests today? No one would answer. And then any unspoken requests. And all these hands went up. I thought, somebody needs to preach on lying. Because all these people just lied. They're all like, yes, I have plenty of prayer requests. And so, I, you know, my, my experience with prayer was limited. And I just thought, God, you need to help me. But when I really got together as a young man with other believers and we begin to pray and God started to move, I thought, Lord, what have I been missing? Now, I, I, I don't think that our prayer meetings today look a lot like the prayer meetings they used to because I believe that God is, is, is showing us things about how worship is prayer, how, how we are to engage God in prayer through his word, and how we can actually pray with a list and get things done. Matter of fact, we can pray more, 10 times more than somebody who doesn't have a list. Anybody ever, ever try to pray without a list? You're like, dear God... So if that's like most of us, you know, if we don't have a list or we don't have any guidance in prayer, you know, and, and you say, man, I've totally failed in this area of prayer. I, I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to inspire you today that there is something for you to enter into. And God has something for you in this area. And this area is so key. And we're going to talk about that today. So. When we pray, led by the Spirit, let me give you a few points from this. First, we depend on God. This is what Jesus is teaching us. We depend on God. Jesus says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Church, just let that sink in. We have to come to terms with this truth. We do not possess all that people need. 
We don't possess what people really and truly need in ourselves. And I know that that maybe doesn't uh, touch on the, uh, the attaboys and the gold stars for doing nothing and the trophies for participation world that we live in, but uh, I want to give you a biblical self-assessment just for a moment. If you can think of yourself as only human, as only the person who is apart from Christ, only when it comes to the needs of this world, I want you to know just two truths when it comes to you apart from God. Here's the first one. This will really bless you and encourage you. You may want to run around the room. Here it is. I know nothing. I know nothing. Look at your neighbor right now and just tell them, I know nothing. I know all the wives were just thinking, I've been telling you that for years, honey. I've been telling you that for years. No, it's not just your husband. It is also you who knows nothing on your own. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 8, 2. It says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing. As he ought to know. He says, we ought to know, but we think. That in ourselves, we know some things. We think we know what the answer is for people. How many of you, you, you just, have you ever tried to solve someone's problem in your own strength? Maybe you just got up a lot of willpower and a lot of things to say, you know what? That's it. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to say something. And you went to your friend and they were having that problem. Perhaps they were, they were dating a person that was just, I mean, a numbskull. I mean, you could see it coming. You're like, this is destined for disaster. Disaster. And you went to them and you're like, you know what? You just need to stay away from him. You need to get away from her. She is going to be no good for you. And while you were there, they were like, you know what? You're right. You are right. And you're like, good. And you left. And 30 minutes later, they're back with that person. What do you what, what do you say? You know what? We don't know what people need. We don't know. God knows. So we have, to, we have to get to the place where we're saying, you know what? I need to accurately self-assess. I don't know. I don't know what I need to know in myself. How about this next one? This will really bless you. I am nothing. Oh, write that one down. I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, and says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, though I have faith so I can move mountains, but have not love. By the way, God is love. You don't have love. You don't, you, you don't have God. He says, without God, what's it say? I am nothing. So what's this saying? This is saying we have to understand that in ourselves, we cannot be dependent on, so we must depend on God as the one who will supply to us. 
Now, I've got good news for every believer in here. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, boy, do I have some good news for you. Second Peter chapter 1, and it says, And he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Man, I've got all things that I need when I'm in him, but apart from him, I know nothing and I am nothing. But in him, you have everything. Matter of fact, let me say it another way. Ephesians said that I am seated together with him in heavenly places. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. All angels are glorifying him, shouting. They're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And guess who's sitting with them? I am. And so are you if you're born again. You're seated with him in that place of authority. You have everything. Does Jesus have everything he needs? Yes, he does. And if you're in Jesus, you have everything that you need. But we need to understand that everything we need is accessed by prayer. You say, what? That's the way God set it up. Because he's a relational God. He doesn't want us to have all of these things and all of this authority and all this power apart from real relationship with him. Walking with him. Following him. All things have been supplied through our relationship with God. And now listen, you should write this down. The greatest external, external evidence of your relationship with God is prayer. It's prayer. It's like, do you pray? You say, how can you say that? I thought there's lots of other things. Well, the reason I say it is there was a day when Jesus went into the temple courts and he turned over some tables. And this is what he said. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. These men were selling things that were necessary for worshiping God. They've traveled many, but they were gouging people. They saw it as a means for profit. And Jesus said, you are perverting the purpose of being in my house. My house is to be a house of prayer. And by the way, God calls those who have been born again the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said that building in Jerusalem was a type and shadow of mankind redeemed where I would put my spirit and write my law on their hearts so you today are that temple so do you bear the purpose of the temple the purpose of the temple is that we should be a house of prayer for all nations that we would be people of prayer and the very first reputation that God's people got was connected to prayer. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 25, giving an account of when, after Cain had killed Abel, 
says this, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, who Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. Listen to these words. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Then, way before a tabernacle, way before a temple, way, way before anything that was really organized, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Let me just even say it this way. Before God's people were called Jews, here was their title. Men and women who call on the name of the Lord. Our identity must be uh, shown as people who utterly depend on God and that expression is prayer. Say, why would we do that? Here's why. This is what Luke 11 teaches us. The bread we need for others isn't in our house. It's in God's house. And it's accessed through dependent prayer. And if we ever want to see God effectually change the lives of people around us, it will be because we allow the Spirit of God to lead us into dependent prayer. Second thing. We need to learn in this spirit-led prayer is that we persist in pursuit. As we pray, we persist in pursuit. Luke eleven eight says, I say, though he will not rise to give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Notice what was the motivation of the one who possessed the bread, it was persistence. It wasn't the friendship. It wasn't the friendship. This is the part that I know many of us try to rationalize. No, God answers prayer because we're his friend. No, God answers prayer because we are persistent in prayer. And I'm going to try to show you uh, and make one connection to persistent prayer for you today that perhaps if, if someone had persisted in prayer, there would have been a different outcome. Five times Jesus used a term to describe people who were not walking in all that was available. That term, uh, five different times, is translated um, uh, little faith or unbelief. Little faith. In the Greek, that's a compound word. And um, it, it, it does mean small faith. It does mean that. But literally, it means this. Low in quantity. Low in number. That's the first definition. It would be low in quantity faith or low in number faith. That's why we kind of, kind of say it as little faith or small faith. So let me take you to one of the times where Jesus uses this word. Many of you would know uh, the scene that, that comes before. It's when Jesus was transformed on the mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. I actually saw that mountain. It's a very high mountain, very high mountain. It's snow-capped. 
It's, it's, it's beautiful. Now, the story goes, Peter, James, and John, would Jesus go up to this mountain? All the glory that's on the inside of Jesus now begins to shine out of him. Uh, Elijah and Moses show up. And then what does Peter do? He doesn't stay quiet. He speaks up like he always does and says, it's good for us to be here. He's basically saying, let's never go home. It's like one of our kids. Let's never go home. We go on vacation. We're never going home. This is the best place. Okay. And then he says, here's what we can do. Here's the plan. We're going to build a little house for Elijah. And we're going to build a little house for Moses. And Jesus is going to build you a little house. And then all of a sudden, the father speaks up in that moment and brings correction. He says, and this voice thundered, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And they all fall to the ground. And then when they look up, they see none but Jesus. Now, there's something going on at the bottom of the mountain. While all this glory is going on at the top of the mountain, a father brings his demon-possessed son, this son that is moonstruck, uh, some of your Bibles would say. And he's dealing with epilepsy or something like that. Uh, and, and so he's, he's throwing himself into the fire, into the water. And here are nine disciples who have had all kinds of success in ministry. They have prayed for demon-possessed people and seen them delivered and seen them healed. And now they're down on the bottom of the mountain dealing with this demon while they're up there in the glory. Any moms ever felt that way when you have the infants and you're trying to nurse them and everybody else is in the church service? God bless the nursery workers. Okay, I know you felt this way. Okay, so God bless you for, for, for doing all that you do. But here's what happens. They come down the mountain and Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith. He rebukes the demon. The boy is set free. Now the disciples come to Jesus. And in verse 19, Matthew 17, 19, this is what it says. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your, and here's the word in Greek, unbelief or little faith. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I want you to see that Jesus is connecting the breakthrough to prayer. But he's used a word. He says, you're low in quantity faith. We've just read in Luke 11 that we're supposed to be persisting in prayer. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you prayed for something and it didn't happen and you stopped praying? When Jesus came down the mountain, the disciples were not praying for the boy. They were done. They gave up. And he says this word, you who are low in faith. Could it be, could it be, they shouldn't have stopped praying? Could it be that this story, and I'm just saying, could it be? 
Could it be that this story would have looked radically different if those nine disciples had persisted in prayer? And they said, no, my faith says God answers prayer. And when I say, demon, you move in Jesus' name, you have to move. And we persist and we go and we pray and we don't stop and we don't give up. We take the stance that God has given us to take, but that isn't how Jesus found them. But that isn't how Jesus finds us most often. He doesn't find us persisting and going and praying and believing and saying, God, I won't stop until I see it take place. Why? Little faith, little prayer. Maybe now this helps you to understand the rest of Luke 11. That not only is our faith and confidence in God low, but our prayers are low in number or, or we stop too soon before God yields his desired result. Oh, remember this too in, when it comes to persistent prayer. That God isn't only changing the person that you're praying for. That God is not only changing the situation that you're praying for. It could be that God is changing you. He is helping you to discover a character in Christ that you did not know that you possessed. When you persist in prayer. That's why in the Amplified Version, Luke 11 says, So I say to you, ask and keep on asking. It shows the tense of the Greek. And it will be given to you. Seek, keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who keeps on asking persistently receives. And he who keeps on seeking persistently finds. And to him who keeps on knocking persistently, the door will be opened. A persistent prayer life is the privilege of a believer birthed in this passion. We know God answers prayer. This says everyone who asks, everyone who asks, everyone who asks receives. And let me just go on record as saying on Wednesday night, um, there's lots of ways to do ministry, lots of shapes out there, lots of things, but I have a conviction that our corporate prayer meeting needs to be in a meaningful time when people can get there. So we do it, except for first Wednesday which is more like a revival service where you get a fresh breath of the wind of God. We see the gifts of the Spirit move. It's a fresh, fresh encounter service. The other services are, are worship and prayer. We're not moving prayer to an unreachable time. We're keeping prayer right where it is, and here's what we're saying. Calvary, we want you to join us in prayer. Why? Because we have to persist in prayer. I, in my heart, do not long for good services where only eight people fall asleep. 
or where people say, man, that was a great message, Pastor. I don't long for that. You know what I long for? I long for the heroin addict to come and chuck the, the, the needles down in the altar. I, I, I want meth addicts to, to abandon their pursuits. I want the abused to be healed. I want those who are sick to be touched by God. And what that requires is a different level of gathering. If you ever want to be a part of the engine room that sees miracles happen, then come and be a part of prayer on Wednesday. Come and be a part of the very thing that adds horsepower to what is happening here on Sunday. I want you to be here on Sunday, but I want you to get to the place where you say Wednesday night's the most important night of the week. Where we come and we pray and we seek the face of God. And we persist until God does a thing. It's not good that our county could be one of the highest rated per household for abuse of children. All while we clap our hands and sing, great and mighty is he. Just not mighty enough, evidently. Unless he is mighty. And he's leading by the Spirit his people to instead of just resting the flesh, of engaging the spirit in the place of prayer. I implore you, those who know Christ, get here. I know everybody has a busy schedule. I understand. We've all got kids and homework and everything else. But when you can, get here. Be a part of the prayer that is going to change this region. The last thing that you need to know is that when we pray led by the Spirit, we receive good gifts. We receive good gifts. Luke eleven eleven says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? Listen, God's answers to prayer reflect his nature. And Psalm 25 verse 8 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Uh, listen, we need to get to the place where we say, man, we can seek God and he's not going to give us something bad. I've heard enough bad preaching about I prayed for patience and God gave me trouble. Not according to Luke 11. That's enough of that nonsense. When you want patience, here's what God gives you. He gives you the Holy Spirit. Because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of you. Maybe what you are asking for is, I want the willpower to endure trouble. God just translated what you are asking. I want the willpower. Well, if you want willpower, here's trouble. But if you want patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit, here's what happens. God comes with his presence. God knows how to give good gifts. There is nothing off limits for, to us in the area of asking God for gifts in prayer. 
God knows how to give us good gifts, but many believers, we simply don't ask. James 4 tells us that. He says, you lust, you want, you have these desires, and you don't have. You murder and covet and can't obtain. You fight and war. Listen, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. He goes, and then you're asking and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. He's saying, listen, the point is, is that you, you're, you don't possess what God wants you to possess because we're not asking. We have to get to the place where we are entreating heaven, led by God's spirit, asking for him to change. This is why we contend for schools. This is why we say, God, not one suicide this year in our school system. Not one. Could it be that we've had some of the tragedy that we've had because we didn't ask? I want to be led by God. I want to ask from I want to ask for some audacious things. I want to ask for more than enough for God's kingdom. I want to ask for an awakening and revival that causes all of you to get activated. You have to start discipling people in your living room. You're going to have to clean that joker up because people are coming. <laughs> Let me say it to you. Just a couple other ways and I'll close. Prayerlessness is a symptom of flesh-led living. We're just trying to be our own answers. But spirit-led living is a prayerful life filled with God's good gifts of provision. And if we are to be a spirit-led church, then we ought to have prayer as the number one priority of our temporary time on this planet. Because prayer is the place where we invite God to get involved. Notice how Jesus ends the thoughts of Luke chapter 11. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Prayer leads to his manifest presence corporately. And prayer leads to his abiding presence personally. When we pray together, what we're asking for is God's manifest presence. That's the presence he makes known to all. But when we pray personally, what we're asking for, what we ought to be asking for is his abiding presence. That's what it will first produce. You say... How do you know that? Romans 10, 13, and I'll finish with this. And all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is that? Prayer. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, I'm telling you there's a prayer that he'll hear today. Call on the name of God to save you. Call on the work of Jesus. Repent and turn. Saying, man, I'm letting go of this life. I have, I have lived this path of destruction trying to help myself and help others. And it is led to a mess. But now I'm turning to Jesus. When you pray, God's abiding presence will come. When we pray, his manifest presence will come. 